Lord, our hearts echo the words of that song. May all our days give glory to your name. Lord, we understand the truth of that song, that we exist for you. You don't exist for us. We exist to worship you, to praise you, to serve you, to obey you, to give our life as a testimony, an expression of love to Jesus. Lord, you are all the things that we have sung about this morning. You are Father and friend and comfort and power and refuge and strength and kindness and compassion and all the other expressions that we find in, in your word. We speak about you and we embrace as reality and truth. Father, I pray that, that our hearts and lives would show forth not only a mental ascent to those truths, but a heart and a life that pursues and echoes the reality of those truths within. Lord, this morning as we look into the Lord's Prayer, as we see the Father that is to be hallowed, the Father that is to be submitted to, that, that your will be done, your kingdom come. God, I pray that that would be the true expression of, of our hearts as your people, that that we would see the kingdom reality even today, that, that we as your servants, as your subjects, are called to the priority of loving God and carrying forth your mission in this world. That happens first of all as we devote ourselves to seeking you, following, following you, embracing you in prayer. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we, re we recognize that that is not as true of our life as we want it to be. And this morning, I pray that you would help us to, to begin to, to see not only the importance of a relationship with you that comes and is echoed through prayer, carried along through prayer, but that we would come to embrace the reality of that and, and to in, incorporate that into our life in a meaningful, consistent, substantial way. Help us, Lord, to carry this out and to see the joy and the experience of fellowshipping with our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. How much of your day is spent interacting with, speaking with, talking with others? Not only for you students, maybe you're going to school and you're, you're interacting with, uh, with your, your friends or teachers or even your parents as you're going to school with them. With, with them. Or in your workplace, you're interacting with bosses or peers or coworkers. But, but how much of your day is spent in, in communicating with individuals even outside of your own uh, immediate circle? How much time do you spend texting or talking on the phone or even video chatting? How much time do you spend uh, on screen time, as it were, on your phone? And what does your screen time weekly report, daily report, say about the things that you prioritize, the, the way you spend your time, even maybe perhaps the, the things that you find comfort or leisure or rest in? What, what does it say about how you find your rest? Statistics will say that the average person spends three and a half hours every day on their phone. Three and a half hours. If you're a teenager, 
the average teenager spends seven hours and 22 minutes on their phone every day. How is that even possible? I guess maybe we could take a lesson. You can do that? Okay, Caleb can do that. Apparently, there are 4.7 billion people who use social media, and they spend about two and a half hours every single day on social media. Whether that is Facebook or YouTube or Snapchat or Instagram or Pinterest, two and a half hours of your three and a half hours a day is spent on those platforms. 75% of North American population are on social media. And, and maybe it's not just on your phone, maybe it's on the internet. Uh, the, the older generation like myself, maybe we're more inclined to the, the Facebook than we are to the Instagram. But uh, however it is, however you're spending your time, uh, we, we spend our time interacting with other people. And so I, I, I share these statistics with you and I, and I wonder, how do you rate? Where are you spending your time? What does your screen time report say about the things you prioritize? What what does your weekly screen time report say about where you find your rest, where you find your encouragement and comfort, and where you find your community? What if God was more important than screen time? What if God was more important than social media? What if God was the highest and the greatest and the best treasure in the universe? What if God not only made a way for you to socialize with him, fellowship with him, but but what if God was was calling you and encouraging you and, and beckoning you, please abide with me and I with you. Let my words abide in you and, and enjoy the fellowship that, that comes through prayer. What, what if God not only was drawing you and encouraging you to take part in relationship with him, this, this social interaction, this community that we can enjoy with God, but he actually also gives you the power to do so. He's made it possible because of Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection has has given us the opportunity as people of faith who who have a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ to actually approach the throne of God, the, the God of the universe, the Father of glory, to enjoy relationship with him. And has not only given us the power to do that through through his son Jesus Christ, but has given us the instrumentation to make it possible through the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us and with us with groanings that are too great for words. What if God was the highest treasure, the greatest good, and calls you and I into fellowship with him? And of course, he is the greatest treasure. And of course, he has given us the, not just the privilege, but the, the ability to enjoy fellowship with God through prayer. Thomas Brooks, who is a 17th century pastor, put it this way. He says, the power of religion and godliness lives, thrives, or dies as closet prayer lives, thrives, or dies. And he's speaking of the Matthew chapter 6, shut the door and be in private, close that door and be with God kind of praying. That's, that's what he means in, in terms of closet, private praying. He says, godliness never rises to a higher pitch 
than when men and women keep closest to their closets. Private prayer is that secret key of heaven that unlocks all the treasures of glory to the soul. The best riches, the sweetest mercies, usually God gives to his people when they, when they come and enjoy the, the, the presence of God in prayer. So we turn our attention to Luke chapter 11. We turn our attention, and I would, I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, the, the pew Bible ahead of you, Luke chapter 11, is page, I believe, 869. Join with us, follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible now belongs to you. So take it, use it, mark in it, and, uh, and that, that's our gift to you this morning. We're in the final four to six months of Jesus' life. He's, he's in this, this, this final leg, as it were, of his earthly ministry. And, and, and where does Luke direct the spotlight, the attention of his, of his focus on the ministry of Christ? What, what becomes important at the beginning of this chapter is this praying Savior. We see that in 11, chapter 11, verse 1. We see the praying Savior. He's, he's praying again. Notice it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Prayer was a pattern of Jesus' life. It, it was the mark of his ministry. It, it, it was the, the power that carried him along. If there was one feature, one characteristic of Jesus' life that the disciples would have, have put forward time and time again is Jesus is a man of prayer. But what did Jesus need to pray about? I, I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus pray? He was in constant communion with the Father. He and the Father were one. Why did Jesus pray? And why did Jesus need to separate himself? Why did he need to pull himself away into the desolate places? Why did he pull himself away from the distractions and burdens of ministry? Why, why, why did he isolate himself even from the disciples on a, on a number of occasions so that he could remove himself, devote himself to single-minded objective of fellowship with the Father through prayer. This was the mark of Jesus' ministry. This, this was the pattern that we see time and time again. And the Gospel of Luke will draw attention to this over and over from the very beginning to the point that we are in the Gospel right now. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we see that Jesus is praying at his baptism. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, verse 42, we find that Jesus has separated himself. He's, he's moved out into the desolate place. And, and what is he doing there? Well, we find in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus will often do this, remove himself out to the desolate places so that he can devote himself to the key purpose of praying and fellowshipping with the Father. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus will go up to the mountain to pray the night before he chooses his 12 disciples. Luke is the only one to record that event. In Luke chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus will look up to heaven. He'll, he'll bless the loaves and the fish that he's about to dispense to the 5,000. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, that Jesus is praying alone with with his disciples again. This is the the point at which Jesus will say, who do men say that I am? Only recorded in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we find again that Jesus will pray. He goes up to a mountain. He's gonna be transfigured. And and Luke is the only one again to, to mention that Jesus is going up to the mountain to pray. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit only captured for us in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was a man of prayer. And those who would follow Jesus must also be men and women, boys and girls of prayer. It's the only way to follow the example of our Savior. Luke will trace the continuing life of prayer in Christ. We'll see Jesus praying again for Peter at the Last Supper. Again, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, Luke alone will mention that Jesus is praying at this point. Luke alone will record the two prayers that Jesus prays on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke will alone capture the three parables that are oriented around prayer. The one we'll look at next week in the following passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 8. The parable of the shameless widow in Luke chapter 18 and the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. Jesus was a man of prayer. And those who follow God will also echo the heart of God in prayer. Again, Luke will draw attention to the, this community of, of individuals who, who in their devotion to God will echo that devotion through a life of prayer. Gabriel will show up to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. When? At the time of prayer. The Messiah will come. He'll emerge because of the prayers of his saints. And that's where Gabriel will come and say, the forerunner, the forerunner will be born to you, Zechariah. That the promises that have been given since the prophets have spoken long ago will be fulfilled because of the prayers of his people. And Zechariah, because of your prayer and because of your wife Elizabeth's prayer, your prayer will be answered and you will have a son. His name will be John. Mary will pray in chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. Simeon will bless God in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. Anna will pray night and day in the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 37, because those who follow God will pray. It was the pattern of Christ's life in ministry, and it is the priority. This is the second point. It is the priority of kingdom living. Notice Jesus was praying, Luke 11, 1 again, in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. This quality of Jesus' life, Lord, teach us to pray, but we see something about your praying that is distinct, something about your praying that is special, something about your praying that, that carries with it this intimacy of relationship, this authority and power that your life is marked by. We, we know where it's coming from. It is coming because of prayer in your life. Teach us to pray. John the Baptist also had this quality in his prayer. And so John the Baptist would teach his disciples also how to pray. John the Baptist, as you know, was the forerunner 
to Jesus Christ. He was the man who was designated to prepare the way of the Lord. And what was the hallmark of John's ministry? It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was about kingdom priorities. Preparing the way for the Lord. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and, and those who will, who will be in the flow of kingdom living will echo kingdom priorities. They too will be people of prayer. As one who was, had this kingdom objective like John the Baptist, he understood that kingdom priorities happen through prayer. Kingdom people depend on kingdom power. Kingdom people depend on kingdom power. I was praying last night in Psalm 118, verses 5 to 9. The psalmist says this, Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Where is your strength coming from? Where is your dependence? Is your dependence on kingdom power that only comes from the Lord himself? John the Baptist understood that. Jesus understood that in every person that is part, a kingdom person will rely and depend on kingdom power. It only comes from God. Are you a kingdom person? Jesus' own own ministry would be carried along by this same theme. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. For from that time, it says, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? And now we see this, this kingdom theme that is, that is carried out through Jesus' ministry. Beginning in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities, speaking of Jesus, cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. So that in Luke chapter 9, he says he called the 12 disciples and gave them power and authority over all demons and to, and to cure diseases. And he, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then at Luke chapter 10, verse 1, we see the same kind of thing happening. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and every place where he himself was about to go. Heal the sick and in it say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of this town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. The disciples, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the 72 prioritized the kingdom objective and kingdom people rely on kingdom power. This theme of the kingdom will show up prominently through beginning in, verse, in chapter 11 and, and moving all the way through chapter 18. This is kind of the, the kingdom section, as it were. And here Luke wants to draw attention once again to this praying Savior who is promoting the significance of, of this prayer kind of life, inviting the power of God into 
the situations that he's, that he's involved in. And, and while this may appear to be the same prayer in the same instance uh, of Matthew chapter 6, it is actually a different occasion, a different audience. In that, in that occasion, in Matthew chapter 6, this was the Sermon on the Mount. This was the, the beginning of the Galilean ministry, about eight months to 12 months after the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And now Jesus is, is entering into the final uh, four to six months of his ministry, and he's in Judea or Perea. Perea was the, the area opposite Jericho on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The fact that Jesus is bringing up the significance of this prayer elevates the significance of this model for us as God's people. It wasn't just for the Galileans. It wasn't just for the Judeans. It's for every person who's committed themselves to gospel, gospel life in kingdom life. So when Jesus teaches this prayer on the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in his Galilean ministry and now moving in to this Judean ministry, he wants us to understand kind of the universal nature of this prayer. It is meant for anyone who would call themselves a follower of God. Remember in Luke chapter one, verses one to four, Luke is not constructing a, a haphazard account. Luke is constructing an orderly account. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And we're gonna see here in our passage today, we're gonna see in the weeks following the repetition of this teaching ministry of Christ in drawing attention to the things that are of utmost importance. You repeat the things that are essential. <laughs> Not that the things that Jesus taught and were only captured on one occasion were non-essential, but the fact that he's teaching it again helps to elevate the importance of this prayer in our minds. We see and have seen the praying Savior. Let's turn our attention now to verses two to four that speak about the praying saint. The praying saint. He begins here in verse two, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. These disciples, and I don't think it was just the 12 disciples, I think it was a composite of all the followers who are, who are coming after Christ at this point, this gathering of individuals that, that Jesus has accumulated over his, his, the, the span of his ministry who, who recognize in Jesus' life something distinct about his praying, asking, Lord, teach us to pray. I find it interesting that Jesus, is, that Jesus is compelled to help this community of believers know how to commune with God. Jesus wants this community to recognize the significance of relationship with God the Father through prayer. So when you pray, it should look this way. So he keeps this prayer simple. There are really only four main components in this prayer in Luke chapter 11. So the simplicity and, and the basic nature of this prayer also help us to recognize how Christ wants to, to commend this as an emphasis for us as believers. 
building this outline, not just of, of things to say, but especially of the attitude and the heart by which we are to approach the Father with. So when you pray, which means whenever you are praying, because kingdom people will pray. So when you pray, let your heart reflect this attitude. When you pray, let, let your life um, come to embrace these features. And there are four of them that I want to cover this morning. The first is Father. Father, which helps us recognize the adoration that, that, that the Father is due, the submission to the Father that, that our hearts should emulate. He says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In Matthew, the, the prayer that's probably most familiar, we would come to realize it's, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And while that is true, again, the, the formula that, that Christ is, is expressing here is trying to get to the heart of it. It's not just the words. And I think the fact that, that the, both prayers are distinct help us to recognize that, that, that Jesus is after the heart attitude. But notice that first, prayer is to the Father. Prayer is first to the Father. Hallowed be your name. This word for hallowed is to regard holy, to revere, to respect, to understand the distinctiveness, the separateness, the hallowedness of the reputation of God. How often when we come to God in prayer, do we come with our own agenda, our own shopping cart, as it were, our only laundry list of things we want God to do for us. We, we don't come with a heart of reverence. We don't come with a heart of submission. We don't come with a heart that says, I belong to you, and my life is meant to be expressing the worship that you alone are due. Our heart is first to be to the Father in reverence. And we're able to do this, this is reflected for us in the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 and 15, when, when Paul will say, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth is named. There is this amazing, marvelous family relationship that we can enjoy with the God of eternity. This is this relationship that we, that we can enjoy, that, that is intimate, that we can call him Abba, Father, this family relationship. But also because he's Father, he is head. He's in charge. He's authority. He calls the shots. And because he's Father, he's the source of all things. We can do this. We can approach the Father because of the mediating work of Christ and the, the interceding work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, 18 draws attention to that when he says, for through him, speaking through Jesus Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Marvel at the privilege that we have as those who belong to Christ to speak to God with confidence. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul draws attention to this. He says, For we are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. 
And then in John chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father seeks worship. The Father desires intimacy. The Father has called you in to relationship that you can have on the basis of the work of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. How are we taking advantage of, of, of embracing and addressing the Father? He is hallowed. But it's also, he says, your kingdom come. Matthew will add, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, those two fit together. This means that we are actually praying for God's kingdom to come as we're praying. We're praying for the presence of this earthly kingdom of Christ where he establishes his rule and reign on the earth as he has promised. But in the meantime, our hearts in conditioned and expectancy are awaiting the time when Christ will come and so that will guide our efforts, our priorities. It will help to sober us in the Christian life so that we're walking worthy of the gospel. Keeping this truth at the forefront of our heart helps to guide the decisions we make, helps to guide and steer the priorities that we have as, as God's people. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. This is the heart of an individual who is seeking after the kingdom. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This heart of one who is embracing the Father and seeking kingdom things. So what, what does a kingdom kind of prayer and kingdom kind of priority looks like? What sort of things are we gonna be praying about? Well, here's some ideas. We're gonna be praying for the salvation of souls. We're gonna be praying that the kingdom presence will show up in the hearts of those who do not know Jesus, that he will claim them for himself, that he will draw them into salvation and, and convict their hearts of sin and renew them as people who belong to God. We'll be praying for our missionaries. I, I would encourage you that if you're not praying consistently for a missionary, that as you walk out the doors this morning, that you'll turn to the left and you'll see the little board on the side and you and your family, or, or you as a single, will, will adopt a missionary family. You will pray for them consistently. You'll write them letters. You'll, you'll see what the work of God that, that he's doing in their life. And, and you will be a partner with them in a tangible way by praying that God will, will advance his cause through their ministry. That you'll pray for unreached people. The last five and a half years, our family has been praying for the Azerbaijani people almost every single night. And, and if you want to know who are some of the unreached peoples, you can go to the Joshua Project. I think it's .net.org.com. Joshua Project, just, and you can, find, you can find an unreached people, and God will use your prayers to draw people to himself. Pray for unreached people. Pray for a growing love for the Bible that God will give us individually and corporately an affection for the word of God, for truth. Pray for unity. Pray that our walk would be worthy of the gospel. Pray for strong families. Pray for courage to speak the gospel. Pray for a heart to give and to serve individually and corporately. Pray for more faith, more humility, 
and more spiritual wisdom. Pray that God would guard your heart from sin. Pray that God will help you to, t- to capitalize on the opportunities he's placing before you every single day. Demonstrate a kingdom priority by praying for kingdom power. What many of our teens recognized last week when you came forward, you recognize that the kingdom is first. You recognize that God's way and God's will is preeminent. You came up as kind of an example for the rest of our church last week to say, God, whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go. That, by the way, should be the heart of every believer in this room. Whether God is doing that for you in in Hilliard or Columbus or Grove City or wherever you live or whether God sends you across the world. That is the heart of a kingdom person. God, you call the shots. You are king. Do with me as you will. Really, the first step of obedience for anyone who has that heart is the step of obedience in baptism. And so, we have bought 50 books that look like this when they come. Right now, <clears throat> right now I've got, we have been given permission to, to make photocopies and I would encourage any of you teens who have not been baptized yet, go through this with your family. The second week of June, we wanna have a baptism so that we can continue to affirm this kingdom priority in your life and anyone else who has not yet made the step of baptism, that'll be an opportunity, not the only one. I would encourage you to make that step. The first is Father. The second is give. Give us each day our daily bread, which is an expression of our dependence. It's an expression of our gratitude to God. God, you are faithful to give, and because you're faithful to give, the, the echo of my heart, the, the expression of my heart will reflect a dependence on you by gratitude. A dependence on you that that reflects thanksgiving for what you have done for me. Not a striving for more. Not a looking for satisfaction in the things that could never satisfy me. Give us this day our daily bread. This word for daily in the the Greek is is difficult to interpret, but, but it really means the essential qualities of life, the essential bread that's needed to, to, to sustain life. It's important for us to understand that these are the basic necessities, not the luxuries of life. God is interested in sustaining you as an individual. He promises to do that, and as we depend on him for the things that he has given to us, we will reflect this heart that we find in in Luke chapter 12, verse 22 and 24. It says, he says to his his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? As we learn to depend on God, as we learn to be satisfied with the things that God has given to us. I, I love what Paul says to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter four. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I choose contentment. I choose to believe that you are good enough to take care of my needs. This heart of gratitude that shows up. Somebody whose life is depending on God this way 
will be led by the Spirit. They'll be full of the Spirit as we see in Ephesians chapter five. They'll be driven by the word of Christ that we find in Colossians chapter three, verse 16. And both of those echo themselves in a heart that is chosen to be thankful. Ephesians 5.20 puts it this way. Give thanks always and for what church? Everything. That's not easy. It's not easy to be thankful for everything. But when we choose to be thankful for everything, we are demonstrating a commitment and a dependence upon God who gives us this day our daily bread. He is faithful. Next, forgive us our sins. This is the the sense of confession and mercy, not only as we're confessing the sins that we, that we have, but, 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 but demonstrating a heart that, that has been a recipient of mercy and so we're able to give mercy to others. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus uses this language of canceling debts This petition assumes that those who have been forgiven will also show their gratitude to God in forgiving others. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Those who come to a place of recognizing the immense debt that has been forgiven because of the work of Christ on the cross will be those who come to a place of loving God much and forgiving the debts of others. You'll you'll recognize that sin is first to God and not to you. So however offended you may feel, that sin is really not against you. That sin is first to God. And so if God has chosen to forgive because of his his love and kindness in forgiving us on the cross, then we cannot stand in the way of not forgiving somebody who God has already forgiven. Does that make sense? It then puts us in a place of God when we choose to not forgive, to hold on to bitterness We must emulate the heart of God in forgiveness. We must point people to the heart of God in forgiveness. Those who are forgiven will emulate a heart of mercy since they have received so much mercy. The corollary, the the, the contrast is is picked up for us in the prayer in Matthew chapter six. The danger is this. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why? Because you haven't come to the place of really understanding how wicked you are, how rebellious you are. You haven't come to appreciate the the weight and the gravity of your sin against a holy God. And when we do, when we come to a place of recognizing how much mercy we've received, we'll be those who extend mercy to others. The final one is here, and lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. We find that at the end of verse four. This expresses a heart that wants to be led by God, directed by God, a a heart uh, that recognizes the preserving power of God. 
in, in helping to intervene in, in areas of life where we feel uh, weak and we feel uh, in, 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 unable to, to obey. This is an appeal to God not to allow the, the, the inevitable tests and trials of life to overcome us. This word here for temptation is a neutral word. It's the same word we find in James chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith produces patience. You see, testing can be a very necessary part of the Christian life to help push us into greater faith. But there are times in which because of weakness and because of our lack of believing in God that we allow the temptations and the struggles of life to carry us away. And and this is asking for the intervening power of God to come and to help preserve us in those testing periods to carry us through and to lead us to life, to lead us to obedience. The psalmist will say in Psalm 19, verses 12 to 13, it says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Now, we can all identify with that. We can all identify that there are things in our life that we never understood that are out of, out of check. And, and it's not until later that we, we come to a place uh, of, of recognition and, and wisdom to see that, that the things we've been doing all along uh, are not the things that, that please God. Those secret, hidden Ignorant sins that Paul will even refer to. But then there are those gross, blatant, brazen kind of sins that he speaks about next. Keep me back. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. God, help me in the midst of temptations to see what I can't see sometimes. The, those, those sins that I do uh, without meaning to and then also help give me power to overcome the sins that I fall into on a regular basis. We have confidence and encouragement in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God allows testing to happen, but he always provides the power. That power will come as we depend on him in prayer. We submit our hearts to him. So finally, where do we go? How do we start? How do do we make prayer a reality for us in our life? First, we have to find time. You have to find a time to pray. You have to plan to spend time with God. You have to carve out those, those desolate places in your schedule. When, when your mind is clear, you need to give God the first fruits of your day, whether that's the morning or the evening or the afternoon. It doesn't matter when that is. Whatever is best for you, give God the best. Give him your time. Show from your schedule that God is better than screen time. Show from your schedule that God is better than social media. Show from your schedule that that God is the greatest 
and best treasure of the universe. Show from your schedule, from your time that you spend with God, that you are pursuing kingdom objectives and you're pursuing kingdom power. Give God time. Find a place. That's next. Find a desolate place. Find an unobstructed place. Find a place where you can get away without distraction, you and God. Maybe that means you set your phone somewhere. You can't get it so you can be with God and not distract it. And it shouldn't happen while you're driving. It needs to be single-minded. It needs to be devoted. You need to be able to, to listen to God through his word and you need to be able to speak to God without all the distractions of life. Give God your time. Find a place. Finally, anchor your prayers in the word of God. Find the word of God as the foundation for mighty prayers. Use the Psalms. I, I often have found it very helpful to pray through a psalm a day. Just pray phrase by phrase. Read the phrase and pray that back to God. Whatever the Holy Spirit lays on your mind in your heart, and as you read that phrase, whatever he brings to your mind, whoever those people are, whatever the situations might be, pray that back to God and express the truth of that phrase in prayer to God in that way. And use the epistles. Use Ephesians chapter one. Use Ephesians chapter three. Use Ephesians chapter six. Use Colossians chapter one and Philippians chapter one. The, the prayers that you find in the Bible are the best prayers you could ever pray. You're praying scripture back to God. What could be better than that? I would also encourage you to take advantage of the powerhouse prayer that Pastor David puts together every single week. What a great tool, what a great resource to, to, to find ways to, to pray and to bolster your life with God, your fellowshipping with God. And as we commit ourselves to do this, we will find what, what Thomas Brooks said at the beginning of our service. We will find the power of religion in godliness lives, thrives, or dies as private prayer lives, thrives, or dies. Godliness never rises to a higher pitch than when men keep closest to their closets. Are you a person of prayer? Oh God, we, we understand that we, are, we have so far to go. But may this be our priority. And may we be able to see the benefits in our families, the benefits in our communities, our workplaces, our, our, uh, our schools, in, in our church, Lord, may we see God show up, the presence of God, the fullness of God, the strength of God, filling our lives and pouring out on those around us. May we express a commitment to this truth. May we play it out in regular, faithful, daily practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.